Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. John Mayer. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review on iTunes from someone with the nickname My Deb S, who says, Dr. Dean Smith has an effective interview style that is easy to listen to. He presents a variety of evidence-based relevant topics. Thanks for keeping the profession and public updated. Well, thank you, My Deb S, for your review. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website, either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We're also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. John Mayer. Dr. John Mayer is the Lincoln Endowed Chair in Biomechanical and Chiropractic Research, Executive Director of the Center for Neuromusculoskeletal Research, and Professor of the School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences, Morsani College of Medicine, University of South Florida. He is Director of Research and Innovation for U.S. Spine and Sport Foundation, Chief Scientific Officer of Excelsior LLC and co-founder of Pillar of Health LLC. Dr. Mayer obtained a Doctor of Chiropractic degree from the National College of Chiropractic, now known as National University of Health Sciences, and a PhD degree in Exercise Science and Science Education from Syracuse University. He is a licensed chiropractic physician in the state of Florida, a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine, and a certified clinical research professional from the Society of Clinical Research Associates. He has extensive clinical and research experience in occupational health, wellness, and therapeutic exercise. Dr. Mayer has led teams on numerous clinical trials across the country on various aspects of wellness, clinical management, and prevention funded through federal, state, industry, and foundation sources, including the largest single financial commitment by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security on low back injury prevention in firefighters. He serves on the Scientific Secretariat for the Global Spine Care Initiative and Clinical uh, and the Scientific uh, Advisory Board for World Spine Care. Dr. Mayer received the 2012 Safety Award from Tampa Fire Rescue, 2014 Researcher of the Year Award from the American Chiropractic Association, and the 2015 Outstanding Research Achievement Award by USF. Dr. Mayer, it's a privilege to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Smith. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, Let's get started. Uh, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor? Yeah, that's a great question. After I graduated from 
undergraduate degree in upstate New York. I was choosing two pathways, but both were closely aligned. I had interest all along in, in health and wellness and fitness, and I, at that juncture, the decision was to go to graduate school in exercise science, health, public health, or um, some healthcare provider type of career. And at the time, I thought the perfect mix was chiropractic because I could have direct impact on people uh, in a clinical setting versus going on to get a PhD at that time. What that would mean is um, not the ability to impact people directly uh, with a licensed healthcare degree. So thus, I chose, chose chiropractic. And uh, subsequently, the two... The PhD reappeared again in my life, but that's the original reason why I became a chiropractor. I really wanted to focus, and I thought it was the best profession that I could possibly be involved with to impact people's lives from a wellness standpoint. And um, to this day, that's the focus of my, my efforts. Oh, I love that. I love that focus. So have you practiced as a chiropractor then? Yeah, so I graduated from National in 1991, practice practiced exclusively for five years as a private practitioner, uh, worked as a uh, associate for a, a highly regarded uh, chiropractor for a year and a half, and then I had my own practice for five years or six years full-time. Um, first opened up in a, in a wellness and fitness center, and a very interesting experience. It, it uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, practice a more broad-scope chiropractic practice within, within the musculoskeletal realm, uh, but more uh, aligned with fitness and such. Um, and then I continued to practice part-time um, throughout my PhD, uh, getting my PhD degree. And then I moved to San Diego and practiced there clinically part-time in an interprofessional setting. Uh, I currently uh, have not practiced uh, in a traditional manner in some time. I do consulting work as a chiropractor and provide to examinations, evaluations to some extent, uh, and I miss it. And thus, uh, when we, we were able to talk about it a bit more, uh, the transition of my career at this point. So um, I'm anxious to re-engage uh, hands-on as patients. Oh, With that that's said, some of the research we've done um, is highly aligned to chiropractic, and that um, has done within my scope of practice as a chiropractor. So at least indirectly, I'm practicing. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So, wh what was it that got you interested in in uh, the PhD? Like, I know you said as an undergrad, you were kind of uh, undecided, but when you got done and you were practicing for a while, wh what was it that made you say, "Hey, let's go back and get that PhD"? Uh, well, first of all, I always like to keep moving. Um, yeah, the pun is intended as far as moving, as far as fitness and physical activity, but also moving, uh, moving forward with uh, innovations in career and the ability to help people and impacting lives. Um, I figured I could do more with a PhD um, than as, as a practitioner and chiropractor with a, with a DC degree alone. And as a mentor that I had very close, not at the time I made this decision, but Subsequent there, Vert Mooney, uh, MD, who's an orthopedic surgeon and the founder of U.S. Spine and Sport Foundation that I uh, now direct the research and, and innovation program for. Um, his biography is entitled The Unguarded Moment. And this case, why I went back to get a Ph.D. exactly at that time, um, 
was an unguarded moment for me. I wasn't really expecting it. It was always in my mind. Yeah, I'm going to go get back get my PhD. Um, but the unguarded moment was that the new chair at uh, Syracuse University in exercise science, uh, Jay Graves, uh, I knew of him through his work in lumbar strengthening exercise and um, developing innovative protocols, uh, progressive resistance exercise protocols at University of Florida. I learned that he moved to Syracuse. I'm like, oh, how about I go talk to Dr. Graves? Went him, uh, met him at Syracuse, and I remember the, the day, uh, <laughs> um, uh, some snow, of course, um, but it was a serendipity or unguarded moment that why I got at Syracuse at that time. And I, you know, I, from Rochester, New York to Syracuse, New York is uh, 90 miles. And um, for the first two year and a half or so of that program, I was commuting back and forth. And um, I just needed to focus on one thing at a time. So I ultimately moved to Syracuse to do my, my research and, and dissertation work and, uh, and left practice full time for, for um, a few years. So, so that gotcha. was it. Gotcha. Well, that is so cool. Um, I, I know a lot of chiropractors are going to want to know about your uh, current position at the University of South Florida, as well as your other affiliations. Can you tell us about uh, those experiences? Yeah. So how I got to be at University of South Florida, uh, I'll start there and I'll, I'll work my way about what we've done here and, uh, and, and then moving forward. So I was... Uh, uh, involved with the U.S. Spine and Sport Foundation since 2000, year 2000. I was in San Diego. I started working with Dr. Scott Haldeman, um, who uh, the audience will know. Uh, and I believe Dr. Smith, you've done a podcast on him. He needs no introduction. I was working with him in Southern California on his uh, World Health Organization uh, Joint Decade Neck Pain Task Force as a research associate. And another one of those moments in my life where he was being consulted with about who, who are we going to get for this endowed chair. He was working with the University of South Florida. Um, they were calling him um, to get his expert opinion on who, 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 who. A little bit difficult time. The history regarding this position was uh, interesting. It's the first ever endowed chair position held by a chiropractor and a college of medicine in the U.S. Anyway, I was at Scott's office, and he's like, I have this call with some dean at the University of South Florida, and um, and he's like, "Hey, well, you might be a good fit there." And so that's how I ended up here. Um, the position—it's like I said—it's the first ever endowed chair position, research research endowed chair position held by a chiropractor in the U.S. So with that has come one, I'm grateful and honored for that opportunity or this opportunity, uh, but it, it's also uh, I'm carrying the the, uh, the load. Uh, the responsibility of the profession. So the experience has been great. We've had our challenges fitting into the system, but I can say this with all, all sincerity. When you come in with an interprofessional mindset, you put your guard down, uh, you know, take, put the wall, pull the walls down, um, start talking research and evidence-based practice, the initials after your name don't really matter. So... Um, we have collaborated well with our medical colleagues and physical therapy colleagues here. Um, we have had $10 million of external extramural funding from grants, uh, contracts, state funding. We started the 
first ever state commitment um, for a center of neuromusculoskeletal research, which is doing well now. Um, but it's, it's had its challenges. I've, I'm the only chiropractor here now, with, at least in the research setting. And um, but the experience has opened doors for myself, but I think more importantly for the profession that weren't otherwise open. So um, as I transition away from this this appointment, I've, well, I've been here for 10 and a half years. Um, the, what the donors, uh, the Lincoln College Education Research Fund and the, the other donor, the Florida Chiropractic Association, what we set out to accomplish, we have reached a lot of those goals and it's time to transition me personally to, to new challenges for uh, myself, but to help the profession, to help people, and my desire to get back into clinical work and do some more uh, research and development type activities. Um, so uh, the experiences of the, the, the Chiropractic Endowed Chair has been good. It's been challenging sometimes uh, despite, you know, strip off the initials. It's great experience. We talk research, evidence-based practice. Um, sometimes it's like an island here. So um, depending on the donor's wishes and as they move forward, I hope to be involved with grooming um, or possibly serving as a mentor the, 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 uh, the second uh, appointment, appointee to the endowed chair. So moving forward, I, uh, going back to where I started uh, several years ago after my PhD, um, directing research and innovation for a nonprofit research foundation that was founded by Bert Mooney, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we have some uh, big plans to continue on the research that we've done with first responders, um, engage in more developmental activities, and the clinical work that I'm going to do will be housed with a, a company that I started with a colleague, um, uh, Charity Lane who's been integral in our, the development of the, the programs that we've had. So we have uh, the research component coming out of the, the foundation and then some of the private clinical work and, and, and research and development for first responders and military and uh, other high-risk workers coming out of, of the other company called Excelsior. So that, that's the plan, and we I doing this. One, I think the, the opportunity to... Um, stronger enforcement of chiropractic on a level that I, I uh, think is needed and uh, to have an expanded impact on helping people, uh, particularly in the wellness area that I think chiropractors uh, can have a large impact, much larger than they have, than we have right now. Amen. I love that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing all of that amazing information. You've been published in a wide variety of excellent journals, including Spine, the American Journal of Health Promotion, Spine Journal, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, and lots of others. Um, I know one of the topics you wanted to cover today that you just mentioned is how chiropractors are well-equipped to be leaders in holistic care, particularly for first responders, and we'll get back to that. But First, I wanted to talk about some of the articles of yours uh, that will give listeners an idea about your research. And uh, one theme that you've had over the years has been on low back 
extensor strengthening. So um, I think a great uh, article to talk about was one in the Spine Journal in 2008. And this was evidence-informed management of chronic low back pain with lumbar extensor strengthening exercises. Um, And I know that uh, whenever I have a question personally about lumbar strength training, I always look to your research because I know of your expertise in the area. So could you uh, guide us through uh, this paper and and uh, your interest in, in low back extensor training and, and what you found? Sure. So, um, first of all, I, I just realized the date of this article and it was 10 years ago. Um, However, the, the information is still very relevant today. A um, little bit of history on this particular aspect. Um, my doctoral dissertation was on progressive resistance exercise, uh, developing it and testing progressive resistance exercises for the back, particularly eyeing treatment of chronic back pain. Um, I looked at two or three different strategies on how well activation and activity patterns were, the specific uh, of lumbar muscles, the rectus spinae, multifidus, and quadratus lumborum in particular, um, using um, uh, T2-weighted MRI. And we looked at different types of lifts under different, inten- different intensities, as well as it looking at some occupational lifts, a stoop, asymmetric stoop, and squat. Um, so that's where it started. And I continued on that work, and I was I moved out to San Diego in the first place to work on an NIH grant that developed a progressive resistance exercise for the back. So one thing that I observed um, over the years, and uh, my background is in um, uh, fitness and such, um, that the back pain spine care community um, has highly aligned or had highly aligned at, at the time on low-level, low-load core stability exercises. And I, I understand the, the, the concept and, and, and the, the purported mechanisms, and I um, have a good thing to say about those, and in our firefighter work, we incorporate strengthening exercise with core stability, or you know, now the, the flavor to call them is motor control. Um, I have a little bit of historical perspective on why that wording has changed, but anyway, strengthening exercise. Um, this particular article is a systematic review. Uh, it was it was a, a component or a chapter uh, article in Dr. Haldeman and Dr. Dagenais. Special issue of the Spine Journal on evidence for management of chronic back pain, and this was one of the topics. And there was also another author that did motor control exercises, you know, uh, the various interventions and diagnostic techniques for spine care. Anyway, so what we this this article, the systematic review found, is that yes, strengthening exercises were beneficial for back pain, chronic back pain in this case. Um, one of the one of the concerns people have is that you, you shouldn't be doing strength training um, of any type for the back. Your back should be guarded. It should, you should be doing isometric work, low load motor control. Well, your back's not actually designed to only do that. It's designed to do strengthening exercises just like other muscle groups. So, my concept or model, and uh, supported by some colleagues, that train the back like you train the rest of the body. And yes, I understand the nuances with the back and the different the motor units and the different patterns that the back might have, and maybe you know, treating the back exactly like other muscle groups isn't always accurate. However, 
this concept was popular in the early 80s. Um, Tom Meyer, uh, Bob Gatchel, and Vert Mooney started uh, strength training for back and you know, functional restoration, and then, um, then it faded away for no apparent reason. But anyway, this systematic review, back ex uh, strengthening exercises uh, were beneficial. Um, the effect sizes were modest. The effect sizes ten attenuated or weakened over time, and we couldn't find any, any, any evidence that back exercises were superior to other forms of exercises. That's essentially the, the finding. Uh, oh, but an important finding. We found no evidence to, to suggest that strengthening exercises results in any more uh, higher rates of adverse events than the lower load exercises. Uh, within that comparison, the lumbar extensor strengthening exercises were no different than other exercises, that you could look at that the, the other way too, that we found no evidence, and this is still clear today, and actually there's a systematic review on motor control exercises, uh, Cochrane review. Um, they're beneficial for chronic back pain, but they're no better than any other exercises. So, um, my since 2008, the data in that regard ha hasn't changed, but the mindset has changed a little bit, at least from some of the people, the thought leaders in the field. Uh, there are a number of ways to do strengthening exercises for the back. Isolated strengthening exercises under resistance is one, which specialized equipment. You can also do strengthening exercises, um, you know, depending on your physical fitness level at baseline, you know, floor exercises off of a bench, off of a Roman chair, uh, free weights, deadlifts, um, you know, traditional deadlift or um, Romanian deadlift, whatever your preference is. Those type of exercises, and particularly the deadlift, there's a, a two, three articles that show that they can be beneficial for chronic back pain and offered some guidance on when to incorporate those type of free weight exercises uh, for chronic back pain. Of course, you're not going to do them in the more acute stages, but these type of developments over the past 10 years are, are, are of interest to me as our, our, our group, both from a, a research perspective and clinical perspective, but program implementation perspective for first responders and military. Um, we need to have variety for the patients um, with any exercise program, whether it's for back or general conditioning, or cardiovascular, or whatever it might be, the number one factor to get results is adherence. Um, in the absence of any difference clinically, one thing we need to look at is patient preference, which has largely been ignored um, across multiple healthcare domains, but particularly exercise. So we need to give people options, one, for the resources they might have available for strengthening, but two, what's the preference? I see no evidence to push somebody into doing isolated exercise uh, uh, on a machine if they want to do deadlifts or want to do some exercises, uh, progressive exercises off of a bench. And likewise, if, they're not, if they want to do core exercises on the floor with the bird dog or the cat camel or, or whatever the flavor is, um, go ahead. Uh, but for strengthening, um, this paper laid the framework for what has occurred over the past 10 years. Wow, I love it. Uh, and I really like all of the examples you gave and the idea that uh, patient preference should weigh in heavily and uh, that 
uh, well, you answered a lot of my questions actually about <laughs> what types of exercise you would recommend and whatnot. So that's great. And, you know, the other thing is that this is a timely topic, uh, especially given that the Lancet series on back pain just came out uh, in March and I had Alice Kongstead on uh, the last podcast. She was talking about uh, the Lancet working group panel and, and the recommendations as first line of treatment are to remain active and exercise, uh, especially for chronic back pain. So I think you answered uh, most of my questions in terms of uh, recommendations. Do you, do you have any um, uh, resources that you might recommend to chiropractors in practice, how to begin an exercise program or a strength training program uh, for the back at all? Well, the systematic review that we, we just talked about would be a good starting point, and there's a series of references within there. Uh, but you, you, you bring up a good point um, that I can't answer that pragmatic or implementation question. I can, I can cite off the research because it's not there. So one of, the, one of the things that our group is going to do is put together exercise training manuals for this particular purpose, um, considering resources, Resources, patient preference, mode of delivery, whether it's supervised or web-based, uh, and other factors re regarding the environment. Is this going to be home-based? Is it going to be at, at, a, at a job? Is it going to be on a shift? Is it going to be, you know, uh, for military when they're, they're in combat? So we are working on that because there's not a lot of guidance on there that is evidence-based. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, I, some of the, yeah, so some of the thing about when, you know, uh, you know, first of all, the Lancet uh, work that just came out is, is, is great. Uh, when do work in strengthening exercise? Well, not early on with acute back pain, probably not. So a lot of people do recommend that, and some people recommend other types of exercises, but let's focus on chronic back pain. Um, the pro for progressive resistance exercise, in other words, strengthening exercise, the progression should be slow and gradual. You need to start patients at a much lower level. And one thing that I, I've learned, and we, we uh, numerous numerous times, is that people in general are afraid to move when they have back pain. They're particularly when you mention strengthening or anything with weights. They're you know, a lot of people are going to. Uh, be apprehensive about that. Um, I used to inform patients or research participants. I used to state, you might get sore. Now I just say, you're probably going to get sore. Um, when you're working on muscle groups that have not been trained before, you're very likely going to get sore, regardless of your, your previous experience with the exercise. Um, so start very gradual, very, very gradual. Um, uh, you know, I, I try to follow the, the the new ACSM guidelines as far as gradual progression. Uh, they just came out with a new guideline in 2018 that's very helpful. That I would suggest chiropractors. Um, oh, you mentioned about resources. This is one. Start with the ACSM guidelines on exercise prescription, and most chiropractors and most physical therapists don't, to my knowledge, start there. If you want to be grounded in the evidence for general exercise prescription, I think that's a great place to start, whether it's for strengthening exercise, cardiovascular exercise, motor control exercise, flexibility. This is where the evidence lies. And to work with other practitioners, particularly those in the fitness community, 
um, we need to start talking. We, you know, we as chiropractic profession like people to talk, be able to talk our language. But we need to talk their language too. So they often the the, you know, the fitness experts um, they don't. If we want to collaborate with them in some regards, and when I'm going to talk about wellness uh, possibilities for chiropractic physicians, um, we need to collaborate with them. They're extremely helpful and talented. We need to talk their language. They're grounded in the ACSM principles and some of the NSA standards. Um, we should be better versed in that, in my opinion. And it probably should be taught at the chiropractic schools in, in more detail. Yeah, that's excellent advice. <clears throat> um, ACSM, I, I use their guidelines regularly. Uh, of course, teaching in a kinesiology department, uh, very familiar with that. And and the other thing that I, the clinical pearl that I really liked that you gave uh, was about people are just, they should expect some soreness. Uh, that's usually what I say. Uh, even after chiropractic treatment, especially if it's their first time ever getting adjusted or doing any kind of particular exercise, you know, you should expect a little bit of soreness. <laughs> um, if not, that's okay. That's great. But uh, you're probably going to have some. So terrific. Um, now, I'd like to talk about your research with uh, first responders, particularly uh, firefighters. And then you've also done some work with uh, military. So uh, one of the papers that you published here uh, recently was on the use of participant focus groups to identify barriers and facilitators to worksite exercise therapy adherence. And uh, this was with firefighters. Can you tell us about this paper? Yeah, so this particular paper was uh, conducted, the data were collected after the randomized controlled trial was completed. So the uh, conclusions from this paper need to rely on the conclusions of the main findings of the, the RCT. So uh, I'll briefly describe what we found in the randomized controlled trial and then what this paper did in particular to help us plan the future, not only for, for further research, but as far as implementation efforts was absolutely critical and it led to the findings of the current study. So this particular study was a, a study funded by FEMA um, we've been fortunate to get uh, repeated FEMA funding for our research efforts starting back in San Diego. This is the second line of three that we've had so far. Uh, randomized Cluster randomized controlled trial at Tampa Fire Rescue. We enrolled 106 firefighters, and uh, it was a proof-of-concept study, if you will, to look at the effect of on-site uh, exercise for the back and core uh, while the firefighters were on, on shift uh, compared to control. So some of the firefighters, based on their station, were assigned to exercise under supervision. Others were just control natural history. Uh, the Several things we looked at. One, can we actually do this? I mean, these are firefighters that are on duty. <laughs> they are busy. They're getting busier. They don't have the time. Uh, in many cases, and some people say, well, they work, you know, they work 24 hours on, 48 off in a lot of cases. Sometimes they work 48 on, 96 off, and there's all sorts of iterations. Nevertheless, they're shift workers, um, usually tw 24-hour shifts minimum. Oh, you can fit an exercise. Well, no, they can't. They don't sleep good. They have numerous concerns to manage. Uh, they're fighting fires, but more more importantly, or, uh, or taking up more of their time at least now, is they respond to a lot of medical 
uh, emergencies. So a lot of the responses are, are medical. So in many cases, they're acting as almost like a primary provider for the community. And I don't know if many people realize that. Over the past six, seven years, the number of fire-related responses has not increased or it's increased slightly. The number of emergency or medical responses increased dramatically. With an overall increase in number of calls in our, our particular area of 21%. Um, at the same time, only about 2% more firefighters are, are employed. So they're much busier. So the goal of this study was, can we implement a standardized uh, back and core exercise while firefighters are on duty? And one, is it safe? Two, does it not disrupt operational flow? And three, do you get the physiological gains that you would expect, meaning improvements in back muscular endurance as measured by Baron Sorensen test and uh, also uh, prone plank? Uh, both isometric endurance tests. Um, yes, we found that it did. Um, the results for both the prone plank and Baron Sorensen test were um, clinically meaningful and statistically significantly greater than the control. No, it didn't disrupt operational flow of the fire service. Uh, firefighters were able to work this in. Our overall adherence rate was about 67% of the exercise sessions were completed. Um, that was about what we hypothesized. That seems low, but in this particular population, it was it was good, um, and it was safe. Um, saw the typical delayed onset muscle soreness, um, but all cases were self-limiting, and nobody had any um, circumstances that were considered serious adverse events. So, overall, it accomplished what we want in terms of the clinical aspect. Now, this particular paper. Um, looking at barriers of facilitators of worksite exercise. Findings. How, really, the, the framework was, what are we going to do? Okay, we're pretty clear that this can, you can strengthen the back, make it more, uh, improve the motor control, improve the stability. Now, what is the best way to implement this uh, in the next research study or uh, as a program? Found some very interesting findings. Uh, with this, and uh, it goes to one, in chiropractors in practice, you need to keep this in mind when you're implementing an exercise program, which majority of chiropractors do, whether supervised in the clinic or home exercise program. Um, but this this provides guidance in that regard overall, particularly for this group. Uh, firefighters need time to exercise. This doesn't sound like, <laughs> uh, you know, Wow, that's an extravagant finding. They need time to exercise. They identified time to exercise as a as a problem. Um, they need to have support from their peers and their their uh, their managers or the chiefs. Um, how their management and chief flows and their peer flows, uh, they go to. So they all move together. If the chief is not active. The captain's not active. Uh, it's not only the, you know, the positive peer pressure, but they get the negative peer pressure dramatically, and that goes not only with exercise but also nutrition. So, if your chief's not on board, if your if your captain on that shift isn't aboard, the shift commander is not on board. Um, it's a huge negative to exercise, and also the firefighters are competitive. They like some sort of friendly competition, and they like to be incentivized. Um, those are the, the, the key factors. Um, how do you incentivize a firefighter? Or if you're doing any worksite wellness program, how do you do that? Um, financial incentives were, were 
discuss, but it doesn't even have to be financial incentives. They just want something, something that's meaningful, whether it's, you know, some bit mundane, but it's, you know, it came up numerous times in these focus groups we've had, uh, even shirts or shirts to different levels, uh, you know, they did this, you know, they got, they achieved this level in the exercise or whatever it might be. Um, so they also, a few other things, they liked, they liked supervision, but they didn't think it was necessary each time. So we're developing, um, we've tested new approaches, a hybrid approach with some supervision, uh, but using a web-based exercise app um, that tracks and guides and provides support remotely, so um, something in that regard would be useful. And they also like variety, so our, our particular program is very strict, and we looked at five, we did five exercises, one a back strengthening exercise, and then four core stability. They, they needed, they, would, they preferred some variety. So that was that was what we found, and um, in, in the subsequent study that we just finished now, we tested some of those implementation factors, and the data are being analyzed now, but it supported what we found in the previous study, and also provided more uh, evidence to suggest that a hybrid approach where um, some supervision combined with uh, electronic uh, app or guidance uh, was probably the best method overall, one for adherence, and two, to, to maintain cost. So that's what we found in those studies. Yeah, perfect. Those, uh, <clears throat> those again, uh, some great takeaway points for the practitioner. I like the idea of uh, giving some supervision, but not, you know, being like a hawk over the exercises. And then using the app, that's really interesting, too. Um, it's not something I, I'd thought about, but um, they're you know, that's the way it's going for sure. And, and people like that. So why not? It's perfect. Great. Well, let's talk about some of the implementation. Um, and you had mentioned the one with the, uh, firefighters, the worksite exercise program. Um, but I also wanted to talk about the, uh, study that you've done with the military. So can you tell us about, um, the implementation studies that, uh, you've been involved in here? Yes, so we completed the third research study for the first responder and firefighter work, uh, the FEMA-funded studies, and uh, we're now working on um, implementation uh, under the, the realm of, of called the First Responder Wellness Initiative. And starting here in the state of Florida and uh, moving across country, at least the, the second site or current site will be in Southern California. Uh, in addition to what we found about strengthening exercise and, and core stability exercise and implementation factors around exercise, working with this group, we realized that you just can't focus on physical activity. Wellness is a package that comes as a package. There's other things that, that matter and everything's interlinked. For example, you can't you, in, in my opinion, and working with this particular population, can't dissociate the nutrition from exercise. You can't dissociate behavioral health from the exercise. You can't dissociate some of the other medical conditions and the exposures that these people get from the exercise. They all come together as a package. If you choose to align or focus on one of these areas, then I think it's, um, one, as a chiropractor, you're not 
giving the benefit that you can, you might be doing a disservice to this group. Uh, so in addition to firefighters, problems with you know back injuries, they have sleep disorders, their nutrition is horrible, the rates of obesity are high, which might surprise some people, but in our previous study, or our work and other groups' work, um, 80 to 85% of firefighters are overweight or obese, uh, measured by various methods. So uh, and obesity in firefighters is related to higher rates of injuries and disabilities, et cetera. So one of the first things that I will do with, with the team and our first responder wellness initiative is address this overall wellness. And I know wellness is a mixed bag and it has, you know, it sounds great. You, you Google wellness, you get all sorts of different things you wouldn't imagine. But anyway, in this context, particularly for chiropractors, um, we should lead the field in first responder wellness. Um, everything that I mentioned, a chiropractor can be involved with, coordinate, manage, supervise, lead, whatever, however you want to describe it. And I don't think any other provider uh, can do it better than us. And I'm actually, I'm pretty sure nobody can. Um, so within the wellness model for first responders, implementation in our, in our initiatives, um, we're hitting uh, on the pillars, health, behavioral health, sleep, nutrition, exercise, uh, form the foundation. Um, so you can't just apply the intervention. You need to do the testing up front to help guide the individualized approach for the, for the uh, first responders. Um, so we're on, those, those implementation efforts are underway now. We have a, a working relationship with the, with the department in St. Petersburg, Florida, that will, we will start this program. And like I said before, we're moving across country. So from the wellness aspect in general for first responders, I alluded to already, there's various facets. Um, there's no one provider that could do that can oversee these services better than a chiropractor. However, there's no current structure to it. First responders in, in our research, uh, many of them go to the chiropractor for the back pain. That's all they think, chiropractor, back pain, chiropractor, back pain, chiropractor adjustment, and that's great. That's great. I'm glad they're going to a chiropractor to help their back pain, and that's the work that I've done. Um, however, the services from a, a entire wellness scope for chiropractors, it's just profound what we have to offer this group. Uh, I'm excited about moving this forward, and uh, if we just published a paper uh, in the Florida Chiropractic Association Journal on this topic, uh, chiropractic physicians as leaders in first responder wellness. So that's the starting point, and we're developing uh, methods right now, uh, courses, sequences for firefighter or, or for doctors to chiropractic to become more proficient in their skills to work with this population. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you could tell us about the um, uh, Florida Chiropractic Association Journal and talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, a lot of what we, we just talked about was in that regard. Um, the touched upon what we've learned and where we're headed uh, moving forward. But I outlined the key features of what it would take for a chiropractor to lead one, and this is not any, you know, whenever you're working with any specific population, it's no different. You need to know the population. 
Um, some chiropractors are very close to first responders or firefighters, and they, you know, they, they understand the, the market. But one of the first thing you need to know your your population. Um, they're very unique. Um, they they see things that I will never see, and that most chiropractors will never see on a daily basis. Is, uh, emergencies, deaths, you know, morbid, you know, mortalities, morbidities across the board that we can't. We can only imagine, and you know, when we get into conversations with the firefighters and chiefs, um, you know, they get, you know, they get teary-eyed. And as, as a chiropractor, um, when a first a firefighter comes into your office, whatever the time of day, so say your first patient day or first few patients of the day, you need to be cognizant of where they might. If they're coming off shift, assume they've seen things and had to do things that you have not. You have not. Um, and you need to, you need to treat manage this person a bit differently than other general population. Uh, so that's described. Um, and then some of the wellness features on firefighter nutrition that, that need to be looked at. They eat poorly. They uh, you know when they're going out for an emergency, they don't know when they're coming back. So it's not like they can sit and prep a meal. And they you know on shift firefighters, at least the group the career firefighters, they cook their meals at, at on shift, there's a firefighter who usually is delegated as the, the cook. Um, oh, and most of them get minimal funding for, for none of the jurisdictions that I've worked with pay for firefighters' food. They chip in, they go to the grocery store every every shift. Interesting way to do it. They go to every single shift. Anyway, you prep a meal. That's great. And went some you know a number of times. I can think of one in particular. You go there, whatever the, our purpose was for educational or recruitment go there, they're just get there on the table. I remember one in particular, they had a nice, uh, uh, like a Mediterranean salad, uh, chicken, olive oil, you know, the, the vegetables, great, all there. Bell rings, they're gone. And they, they don't know when they're coming back. So first thing, you know, they, they think sugar, energy, sugar, energy. <laughs> grab the donut, grab a, a, a candy bar, whatever. They need something walking out the door. So I'm sitting there with the captain that went with me. I'm like, hey, what do they do with this food? He shrugs his shoulders and says, if they get back in 15 minutes, they'll eat it. Otherwise, it gets thrown out. So who knows what they've eaten in the meantime. So their eating environment is extremely poor. Chiropractors can have a big impact on proper nutrition around that. The direct impact on shift eating, you know, as a chiropractor, you can't impact that, but an overall nutrition program that can avoid those ups and downs chiropractors can lead. Um, so we talk about that in this paper as well and, and probably in a more brief method than I just did. And then what it takes to exercise. Uh, we talked about some of the implementation barriers and, and facilitators too. But then we allude to at the end that there needs to be some uh, stronger training program or more focused training program for chiropractors and that's where we are headed at the moment in collaboration with the FCA. Yeah, that's terrific. I wonder, um, as we're starting to wrap up here, are there any other uh, topic areas you'd like to chat about? Yeah, we didn't mention the, the study that we did with the military. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spent a few minutes on that. That was, yeah, that was interesting because, um, well, uh, I'll let you go because I don't want to steal uh, the thunder <laughs> from your own study. So <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, 
First of all, chiropractic in the military, the, the potential impact that we can have is, is profound. There's been a, a number of studies that have come out recently uh, on chiropractic in the military, including one very recently on, on veterans, um, the benefit of adding chiropractic to medical care uh, versus medical care alone in veterans, which was a great study. This particular study we did uh, that we completed a couple, three years ago, um, was an active duty Army soldiers at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And this was implementing a high-intensity progressive resistance exercise in, in soldiers who were training to become combat medics. Um, large study, almost 600 soldiers. Uh, we compared low-level core motor control exercises to higher-level um, lumbar progressive resistance exercises. And we found that training on uh, lumbar extension strengthening results in superior strength gains than core exercise and uh, no difference in the core core and motor control uh, testing that we did between the groups. Uh, the interesting component of this was the training was only one time per week, and we noticed relatively large strength gains, 10% in a population that you think would already be fit. Given that soldiers, um, once they get out into combat, they're not going to have access or be able to exercise a lot. We, we were trying to figure out how to implement a, a low, a low um, frequency exercise for them to be able to do. And we're hoping to be able to expand upon this, this work uh, in the future um, with some of the other work we're doing in the military, including one that we, a new grant that we just got with a team of physical therapists and an MD on uh, chronic low back pain management and, and veterans. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to update you on that at some point. Well, what do you think um, explains the reason why the military personnel didn't improve on the core endurance exercises, but the previously you talked about the firefighters did make an improvement. What, what do you think explains that? The military personnel started up, started higher. They're more fit. So my firefighter colleagues don't like to hear that, but they started out, they started out quite a bit higher in their core endurance than the firefighters. So they had less room to grow. And, and the testing, the instruments, whether it's a plank test or a Baron Sorensen test probably have ceiling effects. So, Hmm, that's interesting. Do you think the from the military? Do you think many of them already engage in some sort of back uh, extensor training? They, the Army Physical Fitness Battery does not include anything specific. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know if they, at this time they didn't. I still don't think they they do. Hmm. Uh, but that's. You know, they came in. These are people that came out of basic training. So we first thought that they might have had some fatigue, residual fatigue for all the training they did. But these are, you know, they're relatively fit. So their baseline uh, endurance scores were much higher. Gotcha. Than the firefighters. So. Yeah, that, that was intriguing. Cool. So, Dr. Mayer, can you tell us about any uh, training opportunities for chiropractors? Yes, uh, that's a good question. Um, as I transition into the new new positions as at a nonprofit research foundation, 
um, and with some private work on R&D, the opportunities for unique and innovative uh, training of chiropractors, particularly those that have a, a research interest, uh, will be there. Uh, we will have interprofessional relationships in, in very uh, varied populations, particularly those of first responders. And um, it's one area that we will be developing or have developed and will be developing in the future. So any chiropractors, uh, practitioners, or those that are interested in a research career, uh, we have strong internship programs and educational programs um, that I would love to be able to build upon and, and, and work with, with the chiropractors across the country. Terrific. Is there um, an email or, or some place where chiropractors can get a hold of your organization? Yes, it's John Mayer, like my name, and like the singer's name, by the way. Spelled exactly. <laughs> John Mayer. Yeah. I had the name first, actually, like I did. So, anyway. Uh, John Mayer at USSF, so U and three S's, F.com. And that's the initials for U.S. Spine and Sport Foundation. All right. Terrific. Well, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I ask this question of everyone, uh, but I'm certainly interested to get your ideas here. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who might wish to become scientists? Yes, that's a great question. Um, be prepared for a rewarding career. Be prepared for sacrifice. Stay focused. Think beyond if there's going to be financial gains for you, which may or may not occur. Think while you're doing it and be very focused and don't worry about what people around you are doing because it will be rewarding. You'll have a, a much different type of base from which to help people. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of value added. And I think we need, this is one area I've discussed with a number of DC PhDs who are uh, at my stage of career, where's the next generation of DC PhDs coming from? Where are our researchers coming from? Um, we, we need you. Be focused, be persistent. It's not easy, as you know, Dr. Smith, uh, managing, juggling, all sorts of other things, uh, but it is rewarding, and um, we need you into the future. You couldn't agree more. I. We absolutely need uh, more chiropractors interested in doing research, uh, 100%. So, well, thank you, Dr. Mayer, for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Dr. Smith. This was outstanding, and um, I wish you the best with this. Thanks again for listening to the Chiropractic Science Podcast. In this interview, we talked with Dr. John Mayer and his work in exercise with firefighters and the military and the general population. We also discussed how chiropractors can implement these strategies into their practice. Until next time, have a great day.